Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. Um, I have here today someone very special uh, who just has written a book, but is really, I think, at the forefront of thinking about, especially during these times in a very serious way, how should we think about the relationship between democracy and power? Um, and I think given the recent events and also things that are happening everywhere, there's probably no more important question at the moment. Um, so I have Dr. Camilla Vergara on. Um, I apologize uh, if in advance, uh, if I did not pronounce that uh, exactly correctly, um, it deserves to be because her insights, I think, are really, um, well, everyone's name deserves to be pronounced correctly, but especially because I think that her ideas are really, really important at this moment. And she has just published a book called Systemic Corruption, Constitutional Ideas for an Anti-Oligarchic Republic. Um, I apologize, I'm not being able to pronounce much today. Um, but it's uh, by Princeton University Press, and I will put it in the link, but I encourage everyone to, who can to read it because it's really, I think, um, I keep saying important, but I, I do that in particular. I mean, this is the kind of book that I think everyone should read, not just in terms of broadening understandings about democracy, but really getting a sense of how we move forward. Um, and I think, to her credit, Camila's also been working in Chile in a very important context. And, and um, kind of, you know, we can talk to her about how she's, some of the challenges of putting some of those ideas into action. Um, so Camila, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Peter, for having me and for that a generous introduction of my work. Um, so uh, I guess I'll start like I always do with uh, questions that I ask all my guests is, um, you know, I, I said when I was reading the book, I, I was so impressed um, with just how much it covered. Um, and it's simultaneously a deep book of political theory, a deep book of constitutional law, um, and also extremely, extremely uh, erudite about political economy, um, which is more of my field. Um, and so I was thinking, well, what is your background in that sense? Because I could read this and think, oh, well, this is someone who has a PhD in constitutional legal theory, someone who has a PhD in democratic theory, or someone who has a PhD in straight ahead political economics. I mean, it's so impressive in its range and its depth of its analysis. So I guess my first one, what is, what is your background and in, in your inspiration? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for the generals, again, uh, 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 characterization of my work as so kind of um, ranging in many directions and uh, kind of bringing uh, many disciplines. Um, so yeah, I have a very eclectic um, a background. 
So I was trained as a journalist back in Chile, my, my na native um, country, and also as a historian. So um, I, I always approach uh, any of the sources as, uh, as primary sources. So this is kind of one my approach that whenever I approach a, a theorist or a thinker or, or any other source of uh, political thought, I approach it from the point of view of history and uh, as, as, a, as a primary source and not something that needs to be kind of read through secondary sources and more digested analysis by others. This is the first thing. Um, so I come from Chile and um, as uh, many of you may know, um, we had a dictatorship uh, by Pinochet. Um, we were liberated by this, by, by um, from this dictatorship in 1990, and from then on, we have been living uh, with the Pinochet Constitution, a constitution that was crafted during uh, the dictatorship and constitutionalized the neoliberal reforms that were were um, implemented uh, at gunpoint. So. Um, when I came of age and, and started um, researching and reading, um, it, it came. It was obvious to me that this constitution needed to change eventually. So uh, I um, kind of um, geared my studies into how can we change this constitution um, uh, through the most democratic uh, process that we, we can think of. So not thinking about only what has been done, but can, what can be done due to technology and advancements in, in, in all fields. So uh, with that, I, I, I um, went to the US with a Fulbright scholarship to a study at NYU, the uh, Latin American um, uh, cases of the pink tide, the so-called pink tide, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador, um, that were led by, by, by populists, that, uh, and uh, they had what is called a, a um, popular populist or popular constitutionalism uh, that mm. tried to integrate and articulate the uh, the uh, demands and ideas coming from the from the grassroots. Okay, so um, analyzing those uh, those uh, experiments um, from an empirical point of view. So what actually happened? Uh, I became very critical of how things were done. Uh, so I, from 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 the history and from actually political affairs, I jumped into uh, political philosophy, political theory, because in order to imagine something that is hasn't been done and hasn't been proven, you need to think outside of the box, and for that you need philosophy mm. and theory. So I came all around from like basically history, the study of what happened, to uh, thinking about new constitutional arrangements and new uh, uh, procedures through which we can um, self-define and self-govern and make our own rules uh, for the future. Mm. So from there, I, I, I at the beginning, I, I went to the New School for Social Research. Um, uh, I studied a PhD there. I never, I didn't finish. I transferred to Colombia because there, in the in the New School for Social Research, uh, they are in the vanguard of uh, what is called radical democracy. So I was mm. trained in this radical democratic um, strand of political theory, uh, which um, I ended up hitting a wall. Because for me, um, the, and if you have read any of uh, Antonio Negri, for example, uh, who treats uh, the idea of constituent power as a permanent revolution and this idea that it cannot be institutionalized and you all have the, the people in permanent revolution. For me, coming from history and a more an empirical background, uh, it was like, where is the people? How can the people be in permanent revolution when we have children to take care of and jobs to perform. So for me, it was crucial to put like more the, our feet on the ground and actually mm. see what can be done. 
Uh, so from there, I, I, I went to Colombia and studied constitutional law and um, constitutional theory more in depth and uh, the liberal canon. So just uh, because Colombia is very, um, they want to educate you in, in the liberal canon. And there I, I uh, encountered Republican theory, the radical Republican theory, which mm. argues that the people need an institution of their own in order to uh, exercise political power. So that is kind of a long arc. And you also um, mentioned a political economy. And because I, when I was studying history, uh, I had to um, sustain myself. So um, I, I was a, a political economy journalist for around wow. seven years in Chile while I was um, doing all my studies. So I interviewed from you know CEOs to the Minister of Labor to even the future president uh, and, and and labor unions and I knew everything and what was going on and how the system worked because in Chile everything is privatized so the pensions the healthcare the education everything is private so everything is an industry so you need to really mm. know how to how the system works in order to really have a critical uh, position on how to change this and how to make it better. Mm, mm. No, I mean, that that kind of background really makes sense and helps, I think, contextualize this work because what, what I found um, about your work in general, but uh, this book in particular, was that you asked, I would say, some really serious questions about representative democracy that in any other context, I would think would seem to be rather simple. And then you tease them out to show we're missing something quite profound. And that kind of mixture between, I would say, really strong, and, and I think you're right about radical, a lot of radical democratic theory. So I, I, I come um, from the Essex School and the IDA tradition, for instance, um, and, I, and I think this is just as true, is that, you know, the notion of the importance, uh, uh, well, I, I think your chapter on Luxembourg spells it out nicely, about really taking seriously the materials conditions that democracy demands, but then also the labor involved in constructing an actual people is quite important. And I say all that because what I was really struck by was that in the book itself, and I hope it's all right, you you kind of take two concepts that I think people who now when they study just kind of accept or don't really give enough precision to, either as from a historical vantage point or a theoretical vantage point. And that's corruption and oligarchy, right? And you really, I, if, if I can, I was really impressed with the ways in which you almost force the reader to slow down a little bit, change their temporality and say, what are these things? Where did they come from? What is their functionality within democracy? And what is our responsibility? And, and I think there is this very interesting part as well in which you, you take a liberal notion about fallibility and systems as perfectibility and turn it on its head and say, well, then what's our radical responsibility for that? So I was kind of like, maybe just to give the readers, what do you think are kind of these dominant popular misunderstandings of the history and purpose of representative democracy that in a way your book and your work kind of seek to challenge and if I can be supposed, actually correct? Thank you for that question. I think uh, what you highlight, these concepts, corruption and oligarchy are crucial for today, specifically uh, for our own crisis of democracy. Um, so let me start with, with the idea of, and, and the other concept that we misunderstand is uh, democracy itself. So the idea mm. that uh, if you come from the Essex school and uh, 
uh, and the uh, em em empty signifiers of an historic <laughs> law. Uh, say, yeah, there are some concepts that are completely, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't have any any substance inside, and we project things on this concept. So, um, first of all, with with uh, the concept of democracy. Um, it, I think that is a taking for granted that today we are in a democracy and this is what we don't even question. And uh, mm. for me, um, a, as a historian of political thought, uh, this doesn't make much sense in the sense that our democratic, uh, our systems of rule, of uh, representative rule, have very little in common with what was the ancient Athenian democracy and even the the um, the uh, popular republic in, in in Roman times. So uh, mm. there are there is no really a link between procedural speaking uh, between uh, the ancient uh, democracy and today's democracy. So um, one of the, uh, the the important features is that a uh, while we call this a democracy, uh, uh, the rule of the demos of the people, the people are really nowhere to be found institutionally. It's only mm -hmm. the people only authorize others to rule. So we elect others to rule. So um, I think uh, Bernan Manan's uh, book uh, on, on the procedures of uh, representative government, um, uh, where he highlights the that the election as a procedure was uh, conceptually and historically always um, meant to be a uh, um, elitist means of mm -hmm. empowering in the sense that when we elect others, we elect others that are better than us, more popular than us, more experts mm -hmm. than us in a way, um, someone that is distinguished. So we distinguish others and we elect our own aristocracy to rule us in a way. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the demos rules itself. So um, so what is important here is that um, a that we, if we if we see it as a as a as a, as a system of rule, uh, democracy today is not really uh, connected to the. I went into the real history of how democracy came about, and this is, of course, the democracy of the United States. And in in the United States, um, uh, there um, um, there there is a confusion in what, or at least an ideological construct that comes after the founding. So, if I went and I read all the discussions of the Federal Convention that were penned by James Madison, and I found out that actually the first um, vote that that convention took was to keep those records silent for 50 years so that nobody could see what was really being discussed in the convention. Mm -hmm. And I went through the more than a thousand pages of, you know, debates, and I found out that the word democracy was only used in a pejorative sense. Uh, democracy mm -hmm. was seen as a disease. The idea that uh, the demos is, is ignorant and should be, you know, kept away from power and only used as, as, a, as a means to electing the aristocrats, uh, the, the natural aristocracy, if you will, that the, the uh, Americans were envisioning. So from the first, in the first 100 years of um, the American Republic, the word democracy was never used because it was something mm. that it was not built into the system. The idea was that this was a representative government and James Madison was very explicit about it. This is not a democracy. This is just a government where representation takes place. That's it. And the people just authorized the, the these elites. So after in the, in the 19th and 20th century, this changed because democracy was um, as a concept was seen as something good, as something that uh, had normativity with it. So uh, mm. therefore, it was changed, and now instead of uh, talking about the American Republic, was everything everybody talked about the American democracy, and this is where we are now.
that. So in terms of what is that, uh, um, in addition to the demos having actual power, which we don't have, um, we associate democracy with a liberal um, uh, limits and individual rights, separation of powers. But this is really something that uh, comes um, after, and uh, it's a doctrine that doesn't have much to do with democracy, but more about how pol the elites police themselves. So how can we assure that the representative institutions do not get corrupted without having a check power coming from the people because as we know as uh, you know a political scientists from the comparative politics area would say um elections are a poor means of accountability we we elect mm -hmm. people and they just we basically give them a, a blank check for them to rule and then even if we vote them out of office that doesn't mean that that person will get hired in some corporation or elsewhere which will be kind of like better for them than actual politics so there's no really a punishment for those elites that would um a, a rule for the benefit of the few and not the many and this is where i come to to the oligarchic part because i i, I want to um tell this story because it is 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 um it's it's fun to know that uh, such a book that now is out and 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 you say is so important almost didn't uh, come uh, into fruition because um, when mm -hmm. I defended my my prospectus for this book, uh, Obama was uh, in office, so it was very difficult to uh, prove to the committee that uh, we are really in a crisis of democracy and that the um, structure of rule was actually corrupted. Uh, when we had such a um, um, a popular and uh, charismatic leader in office, uh, so um, one of the uh, one of the challenges that my advisor um, um, posed was that I needed to find some kind of airtight argument for justifying uh, the changing of the system. And that I found in corruption. So I went into uh, looking into all the indexes of democracy and how they were done and when, and, and how all the countries fare in this in these indexes. And I found that the index of corruption was by far the worst and it had no, no way to actually measure the corruption that is at the, at the level of the structure, only measured um, a, a individual corruption. So then I went to investigate and uh, basically um, this individual understanding of corruption that is a public official basically being paid by a private entity to legislate or to uh, pass public policy in favor of a few um, is the only thing that we deem as corrupt. And actually we have, we have um, come to the understanding that legality uh, is, ha ha is the mark of a non-corrupt rule, which is not necessarily mm. the case, because sometimes we have legalized corruption, like, for example, lobbying or even campaign finance, which in many countries was outlawed um, uh, even at the beginning of the 20th century. So we cannot have a definition of corruption just pegged to the rule of law, because the rule of law is is a, is a, can be manipulated and we can actually legalize corruption. So then I went to um, kind of um, analyze corruption in a systemic manner and um, uh, related to the structure, to the actual order of things, what we call today a constitution, the organization of power. So from the ancients to Machiavelli and even Condorcet, who also I, I, I treat in the book, um, corruption was always uh, meant to be structural. Of course, there were corrupt people, but they were not very interesting in terms of analyzing them. Um, because self-interest is kind of a transcends uh, history, but it's more about how the structure allows for corruption to be reproduced and endure. Um, so I define systemic corruption as the progressive oligarchization of power. So 
um, if we connect this to our own representative systems, the idea, at least in theory, that the majority is majority should rule and should benefit from the government, or at least don't be hurt by the policies of the government, then any rule or any any procedure that allows for the uh, um, disproportionate enrichment and uh, empowerment of a few uh, in, in detriment of the many, then we can um, qualify that as a corrupt act. It could be a corrupt law or a corrupt public policy or a corrupt system in the sense that today, in many democracies around the world, uh, we can see that inequality, the, uh, the disproportionate appropriation of the resources that are collectively produced in a country are appropriated by a few, the 1%, not even the 1%, the 0.01%. So the system as a whole allows for this very super rich to appropriate um, disproportionately part of the GDP of the country while uh, hurting the majority. So therefore, I would I would say that the majority of our uh, systems are systemically corrupt. Instead of working for the many, they work for the few. And we can measure that um, in the outputs. Because, of course, rhetorically, the majority of politicians uh, and uh, appeal to the people and they say always they're going to benefit the people. But at the end, the outputs of that uh, government or that system uh, are consistently going in favor of the few and not the many. So therefore, I think we should stop talking about more rhetorically or, st or stop talking about individual corrupt people and actually start looking at the system itself and have a little bit of humility and understand that our representative governments are not the best. And actually, mm -hmm. as any you know um, construction made by humans, it needs to be updated and needs to be reformed because we are fallible. We are not you know uh, perfect. So therefore, uh, these arrangements are not perfect either. So we need to uh, update them, and it cannot be just uh, reforms in the margins. Sometimes you need uh, an overhaul. Mm. I mean. I want to go to one aspect that I, I thought you mentioned that I, I really appreciated in, in that answer, which was, you know, how so much of our notions of what democracy is um, and the normativity around it is actually a misplaced understanding of what essentially is kind of at its very best, oftentimes, elected uh, aristocracy, right? And I've been thinking about this uh, in parallel to your book and some other things to recent events, which is, you know, I, I think we're speaking now, um, uh, I think it was the week after uh, you had uh, quote unquote protesters or rioters <laughs> entered a Capitol building in terms of trying to uh, confirm the election of Joe Biden as president, right? And the reason I, I bring that up is the fact of like how scared everyone was from that. And, and and I think we can legitimately say that's a scary thing. But then it also played on like really strong tropes of, you know, the most dangerous violence is mob rule, which very much was when you talk about the founding fathers, quote unquote, of the United States. I mean, their biggest fear, as you mentioned, was mob rule, right? Was majoritarian violence. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes me think about the ways in which we still have this fantasy about, you know, um, you know, these kind of elected aristocrats. And, and, and it can be a literal fantasy. I mean, I remember watching um, and knowing even people who I, I thought sometimes should know better. I mean, how much they just emotionally invested into the fake president in the West Wing, right? To 
the ways in which people still have this idealization and prejudization for Obama to the ways in which, you know, whatever else you might think about voting for them strategically. I mean, if you look at the actual track record of Joe Biden, there's nothing positive there that one would draw upon. And yet we still have this desire to believe in a, in this type of system as democracy. And even to the extent that if you look at this, it's it's a kind of fantasy of despair. I mean, even in its most idealized form, like the West Wing, I don't know if you've watched the show, so I apologize if you haven't. But um, cards too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what I found interesting about the West Wing was that you had this, you know, ideal liberal president that in, in every sense, right, plays on every kind of thematic of what, quote unquote, American democracy should be about. And throughout eight years of the presidency on this show, you know, he achieved almost nothing. And I bring that up to the point about corruption was that there was almost this kind of very, very elitist type of like, well, we have to work within the system. What can you do? And for anyone who studied history, it's like, well, you you build a popular movement and a popular front and you create solidarity and then you create new imaginations of power and the modalities of power and democracy, right? But it just never occurred, right? So the entire show for like six years uh, was essentially, you know, if you had the most ideal kind of administration and they still can't do anything. And then this played itself out in real life. I mean, you know, Obama just wrote a 700 page memoir that, you know, is beautifully written and all these things, but essentially it's 700 pages of saying, I'm this very brilliant man. We had, you know, all the executive power and the legislative power, and we still couldn't even get past a basic healthcare brew bill that wasn't written by the insurance industry, right? So I kind of bring that up because I wanted to kind of bring in, it's like, why do you think, despite all these failures, right, we still kind of have taken this view that the founding fathers have that, you know, we really have to be afraid of the people and that we still have this kind of idealization of these leaders, even though in both, even our fantasies, they're not able to achieve much to improve our lives. And why do you think that we have such fear and violence about, you know, we, we, we have such fear about what we consider popular violence, and yet we seem to just accept as normal the everyday violences of exploitation, brutality from the state and from corporations. I mean, that was a kind of long, so I apologize for that question. But if you see what I'm saying, I mean, I was really yeah. struck by that. I mean, why do we still hold on and cling to this? That I like, I, I, I say even in our fantasies, we, we find ourselves in cynicism. Yeah, I, I think that reflection uh, it goes a long way into into um, putting all the the, the 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 necessary concepts and ideas that we need to kind of uh, grapple with if, when we, if we're going to analyze what is happening now. Uh, I think there are two basic currents in in political thought and also in our own kind of minds. Is one is idealism and the other is realism and materialism. Mm. So mm. one thing is what we should be doing or we want it to do to happen. And the other is how actually things are done. And mm -hmm. um, the idealist uh, a strand of constitutional thinking that has permeated into popular culture is the idealist uh, and a, a strand of constitutional making. Uh, the idea that the, the, the elites, the elites will be good elites and they will um, govern for the common good. And the realist understanding is that really there are just a few ruling. And in reality, there's not much that can be done within the system. And mm -hmm. 
part part of the the problem is that we have naturalized the social relations uh, within which we are in. And we have understood as democracy as a way to um, uh, manage those uh, inequalities and those social structures in a way that uh, uh, we understand them as being um, that can be upended. When in reality, this is not the case. Uh, inequality um, today, as uh, Thomas Piketty uh, uh, and Emmanuel Sainz have, have been um, uh, researching, uh, we are at the at, at the glorious 1920s, and even as, uh, as as unequal as the ancient regime, if we take into account that the majority of wealth is is stored in a tax haven somewhere that we cannot even measure. So we are in a moment of inequality that is um, at a, a kind of a breaking point. However, people still believe that this is natural, that inequality is just something that comes with the territory of you know capitalist society and that cannot be changed, and therefore corrupt option in this manner, if we understanding as, as, as um, a naturalization of the structures, corruption is just basically letting things happen as they do happen and not do anything about it. And if, as you say, six years of the West Wing, of the best, you know, um, president and the best West Wing ever could not achieve much because really you cannot change, you cannot in, impose radical change through the procedures. The procedures are there to secure the system against uh, the mob rule against the majoritarian impulses that want to change the system. And of course, what we saw in the capital, it was not mob rule or, or the majority, it's actually a minority. And what I want to um, uh, uh, be detained here and, and kind of like uh, uh, go back to the procedure of election is that in our representative uh, governments, all the normativity, all the authorization, all the all the uh, the burden of, of authority comes from the procedure election. So we define very minimalistic uh, democracy where free elections take place. And so, therefore, uh, President Trump, who um, is, has always, I, I, I was very um, grateful for his, uh, for his very um, open and plain understanding of systemic corruption, uh, because for him, if you don't take advantage of the rules of the game, you are really a fool. Mm -hmm. And this is what he did with no paying any taxes and, you know, and all these, you know, loopholes that the rich can take advantage of. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm not doing anything illegal. I am doing just like I have done, been doing every year and basically taking advantage of the rules of the game and uh, what legality allows me to do and what legality doesn't punish me to do in a way I can get away with. Um, mm -hmm. So when we when he put, puts the the, uh, the the spotlight on elections and the elections being fraudulent, doesn't matter if they were or not, that creates uh, an erosion of the basic pillar of representative government, which is election. Because without free and fair elections, the people that rule us have no authority whatsoever in our mind because mm -hmm. they were not really freely elected. So the system comes a kind of a kind of unravels in a way because. Um, mm -hmm. Even if the people are supporting Biden, uh, everybody agrees, or the majority agrees, that he's not the best choice. Uh, he already has a lot of skeletons in his closet, from sexual harassment to, uh, a, you know, um, a being in, in, in bed with the fracking industry. So this is not the ideal, uh, you know, progressive leader that we have. Is what we have is what the establishment uh, allow to have. So um, people, are, I think, are not blind to this. And uh, I, I, in a way, even if uh, Trump put, 
the uh, representative government in, a, in, in, in the crossroads and actually eroded the system, I think it is it's much better for us to understand that uh, this is the case, that, the, that everything hinges on election. And therefore, it is not really democracy, it's election what is important in our system. And mm. in order to fight back, we cannot fight through the electoral system because the electoral system is co-opted by political parties who spend millions of dollars in putting mm. their own candidates. The idea that uh, we are formally equally empowered to run for office is just a, a lie. It's part of an illusion, what Rosa Luxemburg would call these pernicious illusions, that not anybody could run for office because this is not true. You need the support of the machinery. Without the mm. machinery, the party machinery, you cannot go anywhere. Without all the money that needs to be spent, you mm. don't go anywhere. So you have only a formal right to run for office, which doesn't amount too much. The same as the um, individual rights, which are very close to everybody's hearts in, in the US, the Bill of Rights, are only negative. The idea that the state will not interfere with your liberty, with mm -hmm. your property. What, what happens if you don't have any property? What, what is the role of the state there? You don't have any property. What happens if you don't have education? What happens if you don't have health? These things are, are, are services that we need, things that we need to have in order to survive and to have a good life. But the state doesn't provide us with that. Mm. And that's part of the, the whole illusion that we can actually work for it. And if we work hard, we will get through and we will have all these things. But in reality, people are working two, three jobs without having that. So I think we have come to a point in which inequality has, is rampant. And also that the uh, basic procedure of the system election has been put into question. So now is a moment in which kind of a, there is a conjuncture, an opportunity for people to really look through the illusion and be real, uh, be, be materialist and realist. Look, talk, talk about mm. what really the material conditions of people. How are we living? What are, what are our day-to-day -day, rather than the what should be done or what is the ideal form of government? Mm. I mean, because uh, I want to, uh, that leads to, I think, the, the next question I want to ask, next set of questions I want to ask you on systemic corruption and counterpower. But I, I wonder, um, especially given your background um, as a historian, if I could ask you a, a, a kind of follow-up question on that in terms of, you know, how we can take a materialist and, and I would say also realist kind of radical position in terms of reinventing or, or re-energizing democracy in the face of oligarchy. And, and, and part of that is the recognition that in our current conjunctures, and Luxembourg was fantastic on this, by the way, as well, that, you know, there is a sense in which you have kind of localized or national corruption in oligarchy, and then you have a, a broader colonial or imperial system. Um, that make that you know has its own kind of roles in terms of shaping what is possible, right? And if you look at, um, and I hope it's all right, if you if you look at what Allende was trying to do, and not just him, but you know, this wasn't just a redistribution of resources, or as is often even among leftists, that unfortunately um, in the United States, seen as you know, kind of a role of people. I mean, this was a very very you know uh, uh, interesting and exciting time of trying to experiment with different sets of intersectional democracies and institutions. Um, and yet, at the same time, that kind of very material sense had a very idealist sense in with that, well, how do you negotiate and do this when you are confronted with the fact that, you know, you have a power like the United States um, that is very much not interested in you doing that, right? Yes. Um, and it's interesting to me in the sense that in terms of a colonial history of democracy, how little leftist 
learned in core countries like the United States that this is going to happen to you as well. You know, imperialism always turns in on itself. And in a certain sense, I think we're seeing that in that, you know, so much of this kind of discussion of globalization is really a discussion of something that if you lived in Chile or, you know, even if you've lived in Venezuela or now very bringing in Latin American examples, but there's so many, right? Of how do you deal with the fact that you're not just dealing with localized elites and that type of power structure? You're also dealing with the fact that you're part of an imperial global system of which you have increasingly little power in which to even do basic experiments for re-energizing your democracy. Um, and how does one balance this, you know, relationship between a type of on the ground realism of this is how we can institutionalize, you know, um, a kind of, you know, bottom up people type of democracy with also a kind of real strong realism of these are the limits of what we can act within and we're going to have to, you know, defend ourselves in some ways and at times make compromises potentially as well. Yeah, I think the, the first uh, the first step into kind of into realism is to uh, not see a, a, a kind of like this demystify the law as a mm, kind of mm. paradigm of liberty because we think that what if, whatever is legal is is correct and we don't even think mm. twice. And the reality is the people making the law are these elites in Congress that negotiate and behind closed doors and there's backdoor agreements that we don't know of. There's back uh, payments in a way from corporations that we don't know and they're very difficult to trace. And therefore we can we don't call it corrupt because we cannot prove it. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's not corrupt. Um, and then we have the application of the law by judges who really are just um, uh, reproducing the system. The judges cannot be uh, legislators. This is part of the uh, separation of powers. So what, therefore, when, a, when a, an equal law comes about, the judge can just uh, adjudicate that, cannot really change it. So mm -hmm. the system is made for, uh, for reproducing um, uh, the, the, the hierarchies that are created and, rep and reproduce it in, in, the, in the Congress, basically, in the lawmaking power, which for many theorists is the, the strongest power of all, the one of making mm -hmm. the rules. And... Um, I think uh, what I want to uh, highlight here is, uh, well, Rosa Luxemburg's um, thought, which is, is very, is remarkable because she is a Marxist, mm. she's on the left, but she is also, uh, she's in the margins because she immediately recognizes that the Bolshevik mm. in Russia was not going anywhere in the sense that it was not going to emancipate workers. It was really going to impose mm. a, 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 a project that was supposed mm. to be socialist uh, top down. And that the workers yeah. were just going to be mere means to that end and not really mm -hmm. uh, agents of change. So therefore, she criticized Lenin, one of the few mm -hmm. that criticized Lenin, and then criticized the Russian Revolution, which was completely, you know, outrageous for 99% mm -hmm. of the Marxists. So she was mm -hmm. uh, 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 put, to the, to, put to the side and was demonized. Her, mm -hmm. her thought was not even studied during the, the 20th century because mm -hmm. she was not considered consider someone kind of a heretic, basically, of, of that tradition. And um, what, what she realizes is that, well, she was, she was uh, mislabeled uh, 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 an idealist for, by, by the Marxists saying, well, you know, you're in, in favor of uh, worker power and, you know, power from the ground up. And this is really an illusion because how can you do it? It's never going to work, whatever. She said, it's the other way around that you think 
that um, uh, hiring basically through the, your votes uh, an, uh, uh, an electoral vanguard to go and and have a great and, and and change the world is an illusion. Those that vanguard will, will turn against you in a way at some point because they will impose something on you that you cannot really resist. So therefore. Mm her was an illusion to think that that kind of top-down government will actually emancipate people. For her, people need to be emancipated from within. They need to be their own agents of change. They cannot be just liberated from without. It has to come from political political action, coming together and really having um, an, a popular infrastructure uh, through which to exercise that power. She goes very close to Marxists in, in the sense that the, for him, the people cannot really uh, occupy, you know, the, the, the state and wield its power because that's the state is inherently oligarchic, is a few governing, you know, while the many are there uh, disempowered. So it is very difficult to occupy that space of power, which is oligarchic and remain true to the people and remain subservient to the people. The majority of Vanguard leaders, they want to lead. They want to really be the ones making the decisions and they don't want the people who they also believe are ignorant, non-prepared, you know, unread mm -hmm. to come and veto them or direct their action. So there is, mm -hmm. there is a new kind of aristocracy coming, which is from the left that takes over and she denounces this. So I think this is very important because uh, we need to study that because the left only... Uh, kind of goes and protects the, uh, the the USSR experiment and the Cuban experiment and the few experiments that are still, you know, going on and doesn't really look at the faults of the experiment. So uh, Luxembourg brings the, the internal critique and the idea that we really need to learn from what happened there. And for the other thing that she says is that even if you have a worker's power that is uh, consolidated in local assemblies, and you have it, and you and you actually achieve this. It is an illusion to think that the transition to a socialism, or that these workers will be able to wield power freely without the oligarchy pushing back. And mm. it, this is an illusion for her. So even though she is not in favor of violence, she says that the oligarchy, the oligarchic structure and the oligarchs themselves will inflict violence. They will become, they, they will begin the civil war and therefore workers need to be uh, ready. That workers cannot be um, uh, naive to think that the procedures and the institutionals, the institutions of uh, democracy will save them. That at the end, it is pure force that will um, that will um, uh, uh, impose itself. The same as happened in the during the Roman Republic when Tiberius Gracchus and Caius Gracchus they were they were pushing for for um, agrarian reform and they were murdered. So simply <laughs> uh, simply murdered in the street in order not to for that reform to come about. So uh, at the end, it is about pure force, and you need to really be. Um, be, be prepared. One of the uh, the, the critiques that uh, people make to Allende is that he didn't arm the people, not even with mm. weapons, but also not with real power at the local level. He was always mm. there and he was articulating this. So when he was gone, there was not, nothing to hold on to. There was nothing to go back mm. to. So um, I think part of the, uh, the, the, the insights of Luxembourg and this kind of like the reformist left is to understand that the, we need to 
build an infrastructure, a political infrastructure that is for the people and by the people that will be um, uh, controlling government. Because we cannot uh, understand uh, our uh, modern societies like uh, being governed by direct democracy. We are. We have lives. We have other things to do. We have leisure time. We don't want to be making decisions. For that, we pay good money to uh, representatives and you know the president or the or, or the representatives in, in Congress to actually mm. do their job and legislate and rule. But we need to hold on to the um, to the last resort to the to the power to resist any abuses mm. coming from government with, that will be will be coming. Doesn't matter if they're from the left or from the right. Um, the abuse will come because a few will think of themselves as better and will impose a project. And in terms of the transnational character of oligarchy today, and of course we as in, in Latin America, we know for more than centuries in a way of the American imperialism, is that we as a, a country itself cannot really make this experiment without uh, banding together with others that um, as, as the Pink Tide um, tried to do, there is a kind of a regional alliance in which uh, we can band together in order to resist the, um, the, the uh, push from uh, empire. And today, today empire doesn't come with American soldiers really, uh, but really through uh, corporations. The Canadians, for example, own half of Chile or half of the, you know, mineral resources. And they are very progressive at home, but they really devastate uh, ecosystems around the world by uh, extracting from the earth and, and, and appropriating all the benefits of that. So uh, as, as, as a country, you need to uh, find allies in order to band together against the oligarchic transnational elite that today uh, is trying to uh, limit uh, popular sovereignty with uh, trade agreements, for example, the Trans-Pacific Agreement, uh, the TPP, which was um, fostered by Obama and uh, and um, uh, the Canadians too, it just puts limits on what you can do as a country. If you want to nationalize mm. resources, for example, you would need to pay back, you know, the transnational elite because they they they, mm. they have a contract and therefore the, you, you as a country need to abide by that contract. And this was not the case before. So today you need to fight back not only against kind of like factual power of the military, of a real imperial power, but also against the power of oligarchs and the corporations that will use the law against the, the, the contract law and the international agreements in order to fight back against uh, the majorities that are trying to get back their country. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is really interesting then, I mean, because I, I think that that's really, really insightful and, and, and really on point um, is really kind of thinking then, and, and you, you title the last chapter of your book, you know, kind of uh, based on the Lenin pamphlet and it's like, you know, what is to be done? But I, I think it is a way in which to institutionalize and conceptualize what you refer to as counter power. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be really interesting here um, to kind of, explore in a bit more detail, because I, I think you've really set out, you know, how systemic corruption is kind of, you know, an unequal power relations is built into the structural DNA of, of the demos as we actually understand it and practice it. And, and in general, I mean, I, I think the Luxembourg critique is really well taken. But what do you mean here by counter power? Um, and what are ways in which you see it as something, I mean, you know, that can itself not become oligarchic and not ossify into unequal power relations. And, you know, you have this um, really great way uh, of saying it um, in terms of like 
constitutionalizing is the title of chapter nine, but I, I'm going to read it because, I, because it's a really nice way of it. Constitutionalize the power of those who do not rule, right? So in a sense, how do you envision counterpower and how do we begin to reimagine, you know, democracy in a way that, as you said, is not about just direct democracy, but is about actually giving people the ability institutionally to fend off corruption and oligarchy? Thank you for that question. And this is the, and, and highlighting the, the, the chapter because uh, basically the book was built for that chapter. The chapter was the first one that I wrote. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we can come to a justification of that. Um, so uh, I, I go, go to, uh, as, a, as, a, as a resource, I go into um, anarchist thought and uh, to, uh, to the Roman Republic as a historical uh, example of how to have a mixed regime in which some institutions rule and the others check. And the problem with our institutions now is that the Congress and the presidents checked by the judiciary branch and basically elites police themselves and check each other. But the people have no role in checking. And the problem with that is that they, the people that are checking each other are part of the people that make the rules and adjudicate them. So uh, it is very problematic to have an internal check. Uh, it doesn't work. And this is, uh, this is the, uh, the um, uh, critique that Condorcet uh, levels against uh, the American Republic that was also crafting their, their uh, constitution uh, at that moment, saying that this is just a complicated machine, but that really doesn't uh, allow for a checking power, a real checking power. In order to check something, you need not to be involved in something. So therefore, mm -hmm. the idea of the, the people today, that the people who do not rule, regular citizens who have no privilege, have no, you know, uh, no uh, political power, institutional political power, are the ones who should be judging what is being done and should have the ability to reject courses of action or um, direct government to certain things that are being neglected. So, um, mm -hmm. I theorize this from uh, the point of view of uh, neuroscience. Um, so um, in, in, if we see our uh, representative governments, they work through a very animal structure, the same as us. We have a brain that is a central command, and then we have limbs that respond mm. to that command. So government works in this manner. There is a centralized uh, form of taking um, uh, decisions, and then the, the decisions are, uh, are, are done through, through the different uh, institutions of government. Um, I think that the popular power cannot be centralized because um, people uh, are in, are immersed in different territories, different ecosystems. They have their, they have different lived lived experiences that are very valuable, and therefore centralization has worked uh, for uh, kind of uh, marginalizing diversity and also for imposing a project. So um, mm. I think that uh, the the popular organs, and I and I theorize this as and, and I and I, I pop I. I I propose a network of primary assemblies as neighborhood assemblies that could be um, that that where common citizens can gather and can discuss and can make decisions and uh, that can be connected to other neighborhood assemblies like uh, like uh, a network. So I theorize mm -hmm. this as, from a, as, as a plant structure. So plants, you know, um, trees and, and other uh, other uh, plants and flowers. What what uh, they how they operate is that they have um, kind of brains in every branch and in every root. And these mm -hmm. branches and roots do not obey to a central command, but they obey to their own um, mm -hmm. a, a gathering of information from the environment, mm -hmm. and they communicate with each other. 
but they don't direct each other. So it, it, basically, mm. they have autonomy autonomy in 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 which direction they're going to grow. So I think that we should rethink popular power in this manner, a power that uh, can be um, gathered and channeled through uh, a network um, that uh, could um, uh, connect one assembly to the to others in terms of what they decide. So I'm thinking about something very, uh, very simple, uh, either vetoing or initiating or um, a vetoing appointments or uh, a, a in, 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 uh, in initiating uh, uh, impeachments of public officials uh, uh, that are clearly corrupt or have, you know, uh, have become uh, deranged in terms of like not serving the, the, the people. Um, uh, as, as kind of a, the last resort, uh, the idea that the people need to have uh, a power to fight back. And that power should not be understood as self-government because government is governing. So government is ruling us. So they do the heavy lifting of how a, a, a nation works. But today, due, due to technology, we can really connect one assembly that could be in Alaska to another assembly in Florida in the sense that uh, mm. one thing that could be decided there could also be decided in Florida. And um, we could decide even in solidarity with others. Because if you think about it, um, there could be uh, a place in, in the US or elsewhere where there is an environmental challenge, uh, what we call um, zones of sacrifice in Chile. When you have like a power plant installed or you know a factory, mm. a farm factory, or, or you have a fracking um, project next to your home. And basically your territory is gonna be denigrated and you have no way to fight back other than protesting. So mm. that community could veto a certain project and other communities in, in uh, another place could help out in terms of like, yeah, this makes sense. I wouldn't like a fracking project uh, next to my house. So I would, in solidarity, say we, we agree to your veto and basically mm. we, we can band together. So it's not only about local power, but a solidarity that also you see in plants in which a, a, a trees help each other in terms of like preparing for pests and for lack of um, mm. water. There is a solidarity going on at the root level, if you will. And I think that could also be a channel today and today with all the technology, you know, with um, apps and, and uh, the communications. Uh, we can uh, we can communicate. We can send signals through the network in terms of like where abuse is taking place mm. and where there is oppression and we can fight back. And if we can do that, it's not only that we can, mm. that the representative government will behave much better. Because if you have a power that can veto you, and through that veto, maybe you would get removed from your position, then you will think twice about endorsing a project that is clearly corrupt or goes in, against the community. So I think uh, introducing a new player into the representative government structure, a player that does not rule, but that only has counterpower, has checking power, will make the whole structure work better. So in a, in a way that is a, an mm. improvement, not really a replacement, uh, that is meant to be not very burdensome for individual people, but um, but mm. go go with you know the busy lives of the twenty first century. Mm. No, I, and it's interesting because I, I think this kind of really first of all, I, I think changing the ontology of democracy from the human to the plant is very interesting, particularly because it, it then also changes it from kind of a question of animalistic survival to kind of an ecosystem and a sense of nourishment, right? And, and I think what you presented is incredibly inspiring in that sense, you know? Um, and, I, and I think 
one of the aspects though that I think is on the other side of that though is that people may be listening to this and saying, okay, that sounds wonderful, but isn't that a bit idealistic? And what I liked about your work, if I can highlight, is that you've taken though kind of you fuse this with what I would say is not just a materialist, but a, a very traditionally realist sense of what's at stake in terms of democracy and power. And, and if it's all right, it's very interesting because we now and even our popular culture will have a sense of saying, oh, that's very Machiavellian. And previously we mentioned the show House of Cards. And you've kind of actually, you know, <laughs> in this time of demagogues and said, said the exact opposite. You said, we need to be more Machiavellian in many ways. Um, and I really appreciated that because I think in a recent article you, were, you, you laid out very strongly. And I did have a question about that, but before getting to that, I mean, what, why do you think, and I, and I kind of put words um, in your mouth, so I apologize, but what do you think both that you presented in your book and you presented this article for the Boston Review, like we are missing in terms of saying Machiavelli is a figure that we should actually be going back to and should be taking inspiration from in terms of really, you know, taking seriously what needs to be done um, to combat, you know, corruption, domination and oligarchy. Thank you for bringing Machiavelli. So he is the inspiration uh, for much of the book, uh, and all, and I need to say that I I I read him as a primary source. So I didn't read any of the literature, and and that allowed me to have like a fresh look on Machiavelli. Um, so for him, he and and this is the difference between democratic theory and republican theory. So democratic theory starts from the from the base that we are all equal, that we are in a community you know, inside a nation, and we're all equal, we're all equal under the law, and uh, we have all equal power, which cannot be further from the truth. We are formally equal, mm. right? But there are people that have more power, but that cannot be seen in the sense that it's only kind of private power, right? And therefore, kind of after the the, the revolutions and the, the human rights and, and, and the equality of men, the, all this, you know, ideological construct that it, it was idealistic, uh, came to supplant the previous understanding, the Republican understanding, mm. that the community is never whole or is never equal. It's always the few and mm. many. And that the few and that whatever we do, there will always be few who will have more power and therefore will have more resources to either bypass legality or use legality for their own purposes. So mm. we can I, I I start from the from the from the from the base that this is a divided a, a republic from that has few and many within. And what Machiavelli brings in is that first of all, Machiavelli was uh, from a from a, a previous kind of aristocratic family, but very impoverished by debt. So he was barred from participating in actual political power as, as being selected. Okay, he was he was elected mm -hmm. to government in a more um, bureaucratic position. So he brings this plebeian understanding of politics that uh, the law is there to uh, protect the weak. We already know that. But he also puts forward another very controversial um, uh, idea is that the law is not the product of kind of like rational procedures among elites. Actually, good law is only the result of the conflict between the few and the many. If the few, how it is today, are able to impose rules on us, on the many, uh, those rules are going to be dominating in a way that they are crafted from the few for the benefit of the few, or will be implemented or uh, adjudicated in that in, in that tendency. However, if we have a lawmaking procedure in which the many have a say 
and can push back and can veto or can modify that law, then the law that will come out of that process of institutional conflict will be actually an emancipatory law, a law that will not dominate you at least. So therefore, the a republic for him, a good republic, a, a, a republic that can be called that, is a, a, is a system in which the people have their own institution. And in the Roman Republic, they had the... Yeah. the, um, the Council of the Plebs, and they had their own tribunes, their own representatives of the people in order to fight back against the Senate, which was kind of like representative government of the time. And in Florence was the same thing. Uh, the, the, the general council, the great council had powers and uh, they, they had a, 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 pr a proportion of people from the plebeian classes. And they were the ones making decisions and vetoing decisions, not actually ruling, because for that there were other elite bodies doing the actual heavy lifting, but they were doing the decision making, um, which is directing, basically. And uh, as we know from CEOs and all this kind of like managerial class, they don't really do much. They make decisions and this is the power the power of deciding this is the power that should be shared between the elite and the people and not only be monopolized uh by by, mm. by the elites so um i think uh what I, I i rescue from him is that he is he puts forward a plebeian philosophy that is very unique because the majority of uh books from philosophy from plato to today they're all written by mm. uh heavy uh, elitists thinkers because they had the resources for studying uh, the majority of them were not mm -hmm. women you know the majority of them were have a lot of resources and they were actual nobles so it was very difficult for that class to come up with uh, a plebeian understanding of philosophy and politics mm -hmm. brings that and that is why he's demonized he is completely um uh, marginalized and, and and seen as an as a heretic because he as different from the, his contemporaries he decided to give the Final say. So, what the the uh, the role that the the Supreme Court has today in in our systems to the people. So, for him, the guardians of liberty should not be the elite because the elite already have power. Should be those who do not rule because they will take care of liberty and they will and therefore they will they will have uh, more to say about what is abusive and what is dominating uh, because the domination always comes from the few to the many. So he was um, the, the 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 only thinker of that time to actually endorse the people as having the final mm -hmm. say in this constitutional structure. So. I want to go back to uh, what you said before, also before our time runs out, uh, about the kind of biocentricity of, of what I'm proposing. Because um, when mm. we think about uh, populism in Latin America, um, the you know, this charismatic leaders who come and rearrange power and try to serve mm. the people, try to redistribute wealth, they, the wealth needs to come from somewhere. And what, uh, because uh, these leaders learned from history, they learned from Allende and they learned from the coup that was orchestrated by the CIA and, and uh, in, 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 in connection with the military in Chile. And, and the idea that if you antagonize the oligarchy, you will fail because they, will, they have more resources to take you out. So the new, this pink tide uh, uh, revolution, um, what they did was not antagonize the elites. They actually, they didn't even, even change the, the, the tax structure what they did was to extract from the earth because that would be much easier for them to just, you know, drill for oil or for gas or other resources in order for redistribute that. Okay. But what happened is actually that in Ecuador, for example, when, where, um, the, the right of nature was constitutionalized and also the right of communities, local communities to push back against the state, 
that is trying to drill in their own territory. Um, the, the, the populist government trying to redistribute was kind of at war with the local communities that wanted to stop the, that drilling and in order to be redistributed. Mm. So today we had need to think about beyond extractivism in the sense that we need to think about the mm. human inserted in an eco ecosystem and, uh, and that kind of biocentrism of, of the constitutional structure and the law that is not, the earth is not there to serve us. We need to be inserted and we need to take care of our, our environment. So therefore, we as a people mm. need to understand the limits of redistribution and the limits of, you know, the welfare state as it is, as it is conceived, and, uh, and the, all the, the richness and resources that we, um, we, we have in, in, in the northern hemisphere, but it's it really in, in other parts of the world is nowhere to be found. So we cannot just kind of extend that, um, that quality of life that is there in the, in the global north to the global south, because that will and would 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 mean that our Earth is going to be depleted way faster than uh, we we even calculating. So we need to rethink the human within this uh, this kind of ecosystem and in a in a biocentric more than anthropocentric understanding of politics. I would say. Mm. I mean, and I guess you know, there's so much that I, I wanted to ask you, and then if it if it's all right, I, I have kind of two more questions um if you have the time because i i think you're really what you're saying is so insightful i mean one aspect that i think i've thought about though since reading your analysis Magavillian, and it's what i share and it's also you know I, I think the critique that you've just made about extractivist capitalism and the relationship to kind of left-wing populism touches on this and it's so important is in a sense at the end and at the bottom of, of much of Republican theory, but certainly Machiavelli, is a sense in which, you know, people may may at times be easily manipulable. There may be unequal power relations. But one thing that you can't hide is that people know when they're being dominated, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And I find that, you know, really interesting because of the fact that I agree with that. Um, and, and I think in many ways it comes out when you don't give it an ability to actually be addressed or to even vocalize, it comes out in all sorts of different, less healthy social ways. I mean, I think one of the points that is being missed right now about um, the far right in the United States is that if you actually listen to their discourse, and I think it's important to do so, even if you fundamentally disagree with it, it is in its own way a very perverted critique of militarism, mm -hmm. right? And it's a critique of elitism. Mm -hmm. and it's kind of scary to me the fact that we are now bringing in a, a um, kind of, you know, neoliberal democratic regime that while I appreciate the fact that, you know, they should be a part of a potential popular front to take on fascism and authoritarianism, that they are, you know, the par excellence of, you know, a kind of uh, militarism and imperialism. And if you don't actually give people space to really challenge this, it's going to come out in conspiracy theories in quite dangerous ways. But it does strike me that how do you turn that kind of shared and almost unsaleable recognition about being dominated into an actual kind of civic culture of being able to properly identify this domination beyond just, you know, the few, the many, which is important. And think about ways about, creatively addressing it systemically um because i think that that's that's a more difficult next step and, and I, I think that part about you know moving from the subjective of you can't hide domination to okay we recognize that we're dominated but 
now we have to be able to create a civic culture of shared understanding what's at the root of this domination and what are the possibilities for actually replacing it with something less dominating. Yeah, I think the uh, it is it is too difficult to think about people uh, at the local level kind of envisioning a new system or something more abstract than what is happening to them on the ground. I think people are dominating in are dominated in their daily lives, and therefore the push for political action comes from there, from the recognition that there's something wrong that is happening to you very close, or maybe to your your neighbor. And therefore, um, the idea that you need to come together in order to share this this uh, problems uh, is crucial because when we are isolated, atomized, we always think that the problems that are, are dominating us, the things that are dominating us, are mm -hmm. individual. That is only happening to us, and it's our fault. And this is part of like the neoliberal ideology that uh, based on, on, on your own hard work and, and, and uh, the, your own capacity in a way. And when people uh, come together, they share experiences. And this is very empowering. I want to give the, the example of, of Chile. Um, so even if we can think about this kind of uh, network of local neighborhood assemblies uh, that could be, mm. could be organized as something very far out, if you will, compared to what we have, uh, this is actually something that is happening on the ground in Chile in a moment that uh, there is a constitutional crisis. We are in an ongoing constitutional constitu constituent process uh, that is be trying try to be dominated by the elites. Uh, but the people, so the the structure is so um, illegitimized, delegitimized today. Mm -hmm. So the majority of institutions have less than twenty percent approval. So political parties have you know between ten and five percent. So mm -hmm. uh, this is something that uh, that uh, the the people feel strongly about. That even if they don't know what they want, they know what they don't want. Mm -hmm. So I think experiences at the local level can uh, that are experiences of domination um, at the local level at the community level could fire up many to um, into political action. So I think mm. this is the way to do it. We cannot just think about it like a parallel system of government because people don't have mm. imagination to go there. But uh, at least what I propose with my book is that we need to think outside the box because the majority of books do not do that because they, people in general, intellectuals, they don't want to be perceived as ridiculous. <laughs> this is something that they want to be serious and be, you know, revered. And, uh, you know, as a woman that has been pushed around in general in, in you know, a male dominated, you know, uh, intellectual sphere, I am okay with being ridiculous. So I'm okay with, you know, pushing the boundaries and, and actually envisioning something that doesn't exist in order to have something some kind of blueprint that could be edited or and, and, and thought about and not just having mm. nothing. So for me, the if we see the Chilean example, we have the moment the, the popular uprising uh, happened in October of 2019, mm. in which if we, we, we remember um, the Metro Fair was uh, raised and then there was a massive civil disobedience movement from high school students who were uh, massively evading the fair and then adults join in. And then it was such a snowball that the, that the government couldn't deal with it and had to declare the state mm. of emergency and basically get the military out on the streets. What happened next, instead of people just go back to their private spheres, they began to gather at the, at the neighborhood level. And there is where everything started happening because people started sharing their stories mm. of oppression. And there they, they understood that it was not them. 
that it was the system because it was happening to everybody. So in that moment is a moment of empowering, empowerment, that you are not alone, that you have a community to fight back. And therefore, I think from there, we can build a structure, uh, a popular structure um, that can help everybody. I think I, I want to think it about uh, the structure as a, as a union for the people <laughs> in the sense that when you have a union in your workplace, you can always, if you are being dominated or being abused, you can always go to your union and you can always count on your union to help you out. Out. You know, mm. regular citizens and people living in neoliberal countries where unions are you know not um, not being fostered uh, people have nothing so I think a neighborhood assembly that uh, could gather these experiences and we can go to if we feel that we are being abused uh, needs to be uh, institutionalized something that uh, in, in that institution needs to be recognized by the state today in Chile is not recognized it's just a uh, Mm. happening organically but people are meeting and what and, and what happens is that when when you have a routinized uh, mode of action in which you uh, uh, get together with your neighborhood uh, um, uh, with the people in your neighborhood every one or two weeks for example you get together twice a month to discuss things this becomes a routine in 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 your own in your own daily life and you uh, start going there without having much incentives you just it's part of your routine it's like what brushing your teeth basically you know that something good is going to come out of it but you don't really know it immediately but you know that you sense that this is something that is valuable so people today in this crisis in Chile are getting together periodically and are routinizing their political power, which is a really, um, mm. a, 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 it really brings hope for uh, the more aseptic people that say, well, the people are ignorant, the people don't know anything. And I said, no, actually, the people know. People know where they're being dominated and they know their own ecosystem. They know they, they know where they live. They know they know the troubles in their local area. They cannot envision the troubles that are happening elsewhere, but they do know what is happening to them in their own neighborhoods. So it's from there, from the local, that uh, the, the people's power is, is going to come out, I think. And we need to envision that and, and uh, think creatively of how to gather and channel that without reproducing the same... Uh, inequalities that are outside because for example when you go to mm. a neighborhood assembly and you have some activists that are running the show they take over and that is not only um hogging the space time you know way that the, the idea that you have space to to express yourself but also you are um demobilizing the people that would like to join because they think that they're not experts in politics and they should be left to the experts and the reality is that politics the political judgment about things only needs common sense needs no expertise actually expertise would work against political judgment in many ways, because uh, as the elites very well show that the technical veto of, you know, management and the economics specifically uh, are against, you know, popular power and many times common sense. Mm, absolutely. And, and I think that in a real way, I mean, two points that I think are worth ending on is, is the fact that just as we now live in a corporate democracy, as so many people say, I think we need to learn lessons from, as you said, even basic economic democracy about what do we do? How can we go on political strikes? How can we actually form democracy as a political union? And what does that actually mean? And and also, I think, you know, that the, the point that it's really worth considering here um, is, you know, how do we bring everyday people into not just fighting against oligarchy and corruption, but actually bringing their own common sense to the task of building up new, you know, a new social common sense. So 
I really appreciate what you're trying to theorize and what you're trying to enact. And, and I think it's really important and brilliant at this moment. And, and I couldn't imagine a more timely intervention, to be honest. Um, so I really want to thank you. I mean, another word is possible, is possible um, and you are certainly such already a huge part of that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was fantastic. Thank you, Peter, for this wonderful conversation and giving me the space to explain my ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, Another World is not only possible, but happening right now. <laughs>